Amen. I was thinking about the fact that over the last number of years, the internet and online culture has completely redefined words, certain words as we know it. Completely redefined certain words. When we think of the word viral, when we hear the word viral, we used to think of some contagious disease. Now, immediately, most of us would think about something that's online that's become super popular. Or think about the word tweet. We used to think that was the, we used to go, go to the fact that that is the noise that a bird makes, that chirping sound. Now, straight away, when we hear the word tweet, we think it's something that someone has posted on Twitter. Or how about a troll? A troll. We used to think of that character in Scandinavian folklore. Now we know that it is some idiot online who's antagonizing other people. Or, or a text. Do you remember books? Remember those things? A text used to be a passage taken out of a book. Now it's the way we communicate because we don't like to call other people. I got a phone call the other day and I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, wait, you didn't arrange. You didn't text me to say that you're going to call. I had a bit of a, you know. Or a cloud. Think about a cloud. We used to think that was condensed water vapor kind of suspended in the sky. Now we, we think right away that it's, it's the place where we store documents online. Perhaps worst of all is the word friend. We used to think that that meant being in a relationship with someone because of mutual affection and esteem. Now it's because we've added someone to our contact list on social media. That's how we redefine friend. But it's not just the online or the internet culture that has redefined words. It's our, it's our culture at large that has redefined certain words. And I mentioned this two weeks ago, but that's true of the word God. God used to be a, there was a, there was a sense of understanding of what we meant by the word God 15 to 20 years ago. It was a common denominator. When we mentioned the word God 15 to 20 years ago, we assumed that most people would think of the God described in the Bible and made known to us through the person of Jesus Christ. But that's not true any longer, is it? Our theology, our, our understanding, our, our convictions as to who God is, is vastly different, even in this room, let alone in the world out there. Our theology of God differs because of our experiences, because of the culture that we've grown up in, because of the college that we have attended, because of social media or other things like that. And that's the reason for this six-week series. It's, we're in the middle, this is uh, part, uh, part three of the six-week series, a series that we, we are looking at, at answering the question, who is the God of the Bible? Or, or more to the point, what is He like? And, and we're doing so, we're answering this question from this passage in Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. This is God's self-disclosure statement, a, a, a place where, where God makes Himself known. And so let's read this passage together, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. We're going to be bouncing around the Scriptures quite a lot today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Uh, the, the text is going to appear, text, not the message, but a, a passage from the Bible is going to appear on the screen behind me. This is how God gives meaning to His name. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands 
and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. From cover to cover in the Bible, this is how the Bible describes God. This is how God makes himself known. In fact, this text is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. But I think you'd agree with me that we've redefined who God is. Not as the Bible reveals Him, but we've redefined God so that God can fit into the conveniences and comforts of our own understanding. We've redefined uh, uh, each of these aspects that I've just described, but, but as an example, we've, we've redefined the fact that God is slow to anger We've redefined it as God does not get angry at all. And that's the attribute or characteristic or aspect of God's revelation that we're going to be tackling today. So strap yourselves in. We're going to be learning about the God of the Bible who is slow to anger. A few months ago, I was teaching in the series we did on the Gospel of Mark. And I taught on a passage out of Mark chapter 8 where Jesus challenges his disciples, and he says to them, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come and follow me. And I remember how challenging it was to, to preach, well, to prepare, and then to preach that particular passage. And I remember sitting there getting quite frustrated with who assigned me the most difficult passage in all of Mark, and I realized that I had put the preaching series together. I only had myself to blame. And the same is true here. I haven't kind of stumbled across this passage. Friends, I want you to know that I have specifically and intentionally assigned this particular passage to me. I'm not embarrassed about what I'm about to preach. I'm not ashamed about what I'm about to preach. I'm not going to apologize for what I'm about to preach. I'm weighted by the responsibility, but I'm going to do my utmost to teach as plainly as possible what the Bible teaches about the, the attribute of God that He is slow to anger. All right, three things we're going to be doing this morning. We're first going to try our best to understand what does slow to anger mean? What does that phrase mean? We're then going to have a look at an Old Testament and a New Testament application. And then as we've been doing over the last three weeks, we're going to be looking at how does this apply to me? So firstly, what does the phrase slow to anger in the Hebrew mean? Now, Slow to anger means, wait for it, it means long-nosed or long-nostrilled. Long-nosed or long-nostrilled. Let me explain. Yesterday, we drove back from Columbus, and I'm sure that every one of you have been through what, I, what I'm about to describe. There's a system on the expressways that runs through Illinois and most neighboring states, where there are toll roads, you following with me? And there are a number of toll gates that are labeled easy pass, easy pass, easy pass, easy pass, cash, cash, cash. Now, if you don't know what easy pass is, can I suggest to you that you should be driving through the cash lanes? <laughs> However, there are some folks who think to themselves, I wonder if I have an easy pass and then try to go through the easy pass lane, assuming that they do, and then wonder why the boom doesn't open. I get annoyed and frustrated 
by those folks who try that. Forgive me if that's one of you. The Lord recently humbled me though. I was driving my daughter's car and I went to pick her up from Michigan. And I was driving, when I gave her the car, I gave her the car with a full Easy Pass transponder. I assumed she had recharged that said transponder. So I drove into the Easy Pass lane and the boom didn't budge. And four or five cars began to line up behind me. And I began to experience the very thing that I project on others when I get stuck behind the person in the Easy Pass lane who should be paying cash. But what do we do when we're stuck in those situations? Or maybe I should say it this way. This is what I do when we're stuck in those situations. Our nostrils begin to flare. They get short. Our heart begins to race. And we begin to say things or do things that we absolutely shouldn't. We are certainly not slow to anger. We are certainly not long-nostrilled. But this is what we should do. When we come behind someone like that, when we're tempted to get angry, we should tighten our lips, breathe deeply, our nostrils get nice and long, our heart rate softens, and we become patient. That's the literal meaning of long of nostril, long nostrilled. And that's exactly what the, what the Hebrew is trying to communicate, not necessarily about us, but certainly about God. God is slow to anger. God is long nostrilled. And I know that's a crazy illustration, but I guarantee no one here is ever going to forget that the next time you want to get angry. Remember, be long nostrilled. Now, there are two sides to this phrase, slow to anger. On the one hand, the Bible teaches that God is slow to anger. God's anger, unlike ours, is not bad-tempered. It's not unpredictable. It's not vengeful or spiteful or, or, or subject to mood. No, the Bible teaches that God is patient. There's an ancient translation of Exodus chapter 34. Think of it as an, an ancient version of the Message Bible, as it were. There's an ancient translation of Exodus 34 that, describe, that describes God's being slow to anger as this, and I love it. He is the one, God is the one, who makes anger distant, but brings compassion near. He is the one who makes anger distant, but brings compassion near. Think of that contrast. Anger is, is off in the distance. It's off on the horizon. But God brings compassion so near that, is, that we can grasp it, that we can take hold of it. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 61. You might be familiar with Isaiah 61, where we are told that Jesus is the one who came to proclaim. We are called, as followers of Jesus, called to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. The day of vengeance. God brings compassion near. And keeps anger at a distance. 
That's who our God is. But on the other hand, the Bible does teach that God is not just slow to anger, he is slow to anger. And this is not a truth for us to be embarrassed about, like some of us have that crazy uncle with that embarrassing family secret that everyone knows, but no one wants to talk about. We don't need to be that way with God. Psalm 7 says this, my shield is God most high, who saves the upright in heart. But God is also a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath or his anger every day. Meaning that God is just, friends, and his anger is a fitting response to injustice. If the God of the Bible didn't care at all about sexual abuse or injustice or theft or murder or idolatry, he's not worthy of anyone's worship. If the God of the Bible is unmoved by, by or, or, or indifferent towards racism or perversion or rape or dishonesty, he's not worthy of anyone's praise. The wrath of God, his, his perfect Righteous, predictable, unchanging, consistent, and uncompromising response to evil and sin, when it is understood correctly, is a reason for us to worship and adore Him. Sam Storms, who is a pastor and, and, and author, Christian author, says this, listen to this, the God of the Bible, the only true God, is indescribably patient and kind and compassionate and loving and gracious and merciful. But that does not mean he is soft on sin or akin to that coddling, overindulgent grandfather who lets you get away with stuff your parents would never allow. God is holy and righteous and just and most certainly not doting and spineless, lacking the will or the authority to hold anyone accountable for their actions. I want you to think about this for a moment. If we don't deserve judgment for our sins, if we don't deserve judgment for our sins, if God's response to our sin is simply, don't worry about it, I don't really mind, what, what actually happens is we're draining grace and forgiveness of its meaning. You see, friends, our sin demands that God take action against us in His righteous anger. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel, is that instead of taking action against us, God takes action for us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's what gives forgiveness and grace its meaning. My sin and your sin might be great. And the consequences of my sin and your sin might be greater. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, the greatness of God's grace is revealed as we bring those sins before Him through repentance. I want you to turn in your Bible, if you can, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 is a passage we should essentially preach an entire series on. But in the next five minutes, I just want to walk us through some of the highlights of this incredible passage of Scripture. 
Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He wants them to understand the greater greatness of God's grace. Grace that is greater than than our sin and even greater than the consequences of our sin. And he says this in verse one, as for you, speaking to them, speaking to us today, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Friends, we we need to understand that before we came to know Jesus as, as Lord and Savior, we weren't just having a difficult season. We weren't just going through a tough time. We weren't just in need of a, of a fresh perspective. Before you and I knew Jesus, we were dead in our sins. We were as interested in God as a corpse would be, is what Paul is trying to communicate. As for you, when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, and, uh, which you used to live when you were followed the ways of this world, the world that is amoral and individualistic and secular and materialistic and, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Behind all of this is, is Satan, the, 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 the king of, of this world. And we need to understand, friends, before we knew Jesus, before we knew him as Lord and Savior, we were not just indifferent to the things of God. We were entrenched in the kingdom of darkness. All of us, verse 3, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. No wonder Paul says, like the rest, we were by, by nature objects of wrath. Outside of knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, we live under the wrath of God, His righteous anger against sin. We were dead, we were bound, and we were condemned. I know this is tough to hear, but this is what the Bible teaches. But I want you to look at verse 4. In verse four, the the good news breaks in. We, we, We are found in this impossible situation of being able to rescue ourselves. And verse four in the ESV says, but God, God steps in. God steps in to save us. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you and I have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, God steps in and saves us. God steps in and rescues us. God steps in and delivers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. Our sin might be great, and the consequences of our sin might might be even greater, and both demand that God take action against us in his righteous judgment and wrath. But God chooses to take action for us through the death of his son Jesus and invites us to be sheltered under the name of Jesus. Last week, we had a look at a passage of Scripture. Turn to Nahum, if you you want to, in your Bibles. Uh, Nahum is one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. 
Last week, we had a look at the fact that Jonah, one of the prophets, went to Nineveh. Nineveh was Israel's arch rival, arch enemy. They were brutal. They were savage. They consistently and constantly opposed the plan of God. And last week, we read that Jonah was sent by God to preach repentance to the city. And remarkably, the king and the entire citizen, all the citizens of Nineveh, turned their hearts towards the Lord in repentance. But unfortunately, their repentance is short-lived. And 150 years later, God now sends the prophet Nahum, because Nineveh, although initially chose to to turn away from God, have consistently been hard-hearted toward him. Look at verse 2. Nahum says this to the people of Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Quoting Exodus 34, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Down to verse seven, the Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make the end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. It's remarkable that that Exodus 34 is quoted by Jonah when God turns in compassion towards the people of Nineveh. But Exodus 34 is also quoted by Nahum when God says, enough is enough. The challenge we face, friends, is we read the story of Jonah, and then maybe two or three weeks later, we read the story of Nahum. We see God's compassion in Jonah, and we see God's anger and wrath in the story of Nahum, and we ask ourselves, God, which is it? Are you compassionate, or or are are you angry? And what we don't see is that there are 150 years of God consistently sending prophet after prophet after prophet to the city of Nineveh. God consistently crying out and and hoping and trusting and and longing for Nineveh to turn their hearts to him. 150 years of of God, God wanting the people of Nineveh to turn and eventually God says, because I am a just God, I cannot consistently turn my back on the evil and, 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 and and, and, and I need to be, pour out my wrath if I am a just God. What is interesting is that it's only 10 years later that Nineveh are attacked by the, by the, by the Babylonians. And what's interesting about that is often we think of God's anger being expressed through smiting something or someone in an instant. We all think that, don't we? But the overwhelming majority of examples in Scripture are not God smiting someone in an instant, but actually God saying, all right, you live as you want to live. And God begins to back off. In the language of Romans chapter 1, he gives them over to the way they want to live. Now, this is so important for us to understand. Turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 describes the the heart attitude of Israel as they begin to journey from Egypt into the promised land. And the first 12 verses of 106 describe uh, the Israelites following the Lord, but then slowly they begin to forget 
the, the faithfulness of God. And verse 13 in Psalm 106 says this, but they soon forgot what God had done. They soon forgot what God had done. And then verse 21 goes even deeper. They forgot the God who saved them. And then verse 24 begins to describe the, 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 the way the Israelites began to live. They despised God, and they did not believe God, and they grumbled against God, and they did not obey Him, and they yoked themselves to other gods, and they rebelled against the Spirit, and they defiled themselves by, the, by prostituting themselves with other nations. Friends, we need to see the pattern here. When we consistently forget the faithfulness and the goodness of God, we are on track to begin to forget who God is. And we, when we forget what God has done, and we, we start to live in a way where we forget God altogether, we soon begin to live in the way that we want, rather than in the way that God wants. And then verse 40 says this, Therefore the Lord was angry with his people. He gave them into the hands of the nations. Essentially what God said is this, you, you want to worship other gods? You want to prostitute yourself with other nations? All right, go, go at it. Have it your way. It's a terrible thing when our, when our hearts are not right with God and God gives us over to the way that we want to live. But listen to how compassionate and gracious God is. The Israelites are handed over to other nations and they begin to live as they want to live, but, but very quickly they begin to realize that they have turned away from the one true God. And look at verse 40, 44. God took note of their distress when he heard their cry. Like the prodigal son we read about last week, when, he, when that prodigal son came to his senses and realized that he had squandered his inheritance, he said, maybe my father will take me back. And that's exactly what the Israelites were doing here. They realized that they had squandered their inheritance and began to cry out to God. And friends, our God is not just slow to anger. Last week we learned he is compassionate and gracious. And so he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant out, and out of his great love, he relented. That's the God we worship and serve. He's not just slow to anger. He is so, so slow to anger. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come into Repentance. All right, let's turn, if we can, to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. So we've seen this uh, 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 kind of described, uh, uh, God described in the Old Testament this way. And as we've been working through the series, what, what I've been arguing each week is, is sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, that's, that's the Old Testament God. But God, as slow to anger, is revealed in the person of Jesus as well. Mark chapter 11 is the account of Jesus angrily clearing the temple of the money changers and the merchants. The temple that was in Jerusalem 
uh, uh, consisted of various courts, and the outer court was known as the court of nations. And it's the only place where the Gentiles were allowed to come and seek the Lord. But it was also the place where Jews would come to exchange money and also to purchase animals for sacrifice. Historians tell us that this place was, was massive. It was big enough to hold 75,000 people. And the Jews would pass through this court of, of nations, and they would bring foreign money, but there were money changes there, the only money changes that you could use to, to get Jewish money. And so they were charging exorbitant rates. And then once they had their money, they would go to purchase an animal for sacrifice. But it was only in the court that merchants had set up shops that also gave you the certificate you needed to prove that your animal was pure. And so people were taking advantage of those coming into the courts of the Lord. As I say, historians tell us that the court was big enough for 75,000 people, and up to 250,000 lambs could be sold on any Passover weekend. I say all that because I want you to grasp the scale of what is happening here. If you flick through a Bible with pictures, you might see Jesus tipping over a few little tables, and it's pictured like a room this big. Let me tell you, friends, it was a massive, massive place with noise and with activity and with people and with sheep and, 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 and lambs and, and, God, and, and the smell of it all. And this was the place where the Gentiles were meant to come and seek the Lord. This was the place where the people of God were meant to gather to pray for the nations of the world. And Jesus comes and he, he looks around the temple in Mark 11. And then it tells us that he returns to Bethany, a village just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And he begins to pray and plan what he wants to do. In fact, John tells us that Jesus makes a whip. And the next day, he returns to the temple, verse 15 and 16. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus enters the temple courts and begins driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. This was not Jesus uh, 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 having a temper tantrum. This was not Jesus just getting frustrated. He had been in the temple since the age of 12. And hundreds of times he had seen the corruption that was happening. Year after year during his ministry, he had preached repentance. He had preached that people would turn their hearts towards him. He is slow to anger, but eventually his response is, enough is enough. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. This might make us uncomfortable. But I would put it to you that righteous anger is the only appropriate response to something or someone that is simply sinfully opposing the will and way of God. We mustn't misunderstand God's love and God's anger. Because God is love, He gets angry. Notice what I said. Because God is love, He gets angry. Let's bring this into land. What does this mean for, for you and for me? For some of us here, 
we need to know that God is slow to anger. I struggle, if I'm honest, I struggle sometimes thinking that I am possibly just one mistake away from God saying, all right, Steve, you're on your own. I struggle sometimes with the idea that God is a, is a, is a wrath-filled God waiting for me to step out of line so that he can put me in order. And perhaps you do too. And I would say that you and I need to know, need to learn today that God is full of grace and full of mercy. Perhaps you're here today and you are doing your utmost to live in such a way that pleases God. But as you are living in such a way that pleases God, every now and then you, you trip and stumble and fall and you think that that's going to give God reason to turn his back from you. And I want to say, friends, God is there to pick us up and dust us off and take us by the hand and continue to walk into the destiny that he has prepared for you and for me. God is long-nostrilled. God is slow to anger. He knows our future, and he's committed to help us walk into our future. But I want, I want to say that there might be others here who you need to know that God is slow to anger. You've redefined God as a God who doesn't get angry. And so you've redefined God's love as tolerance. Love and tolerance are not the same thing. God's love is not, you can do what you want, have your own way. God's love is, here are my, are my righteous ways that will lead you into life. God is not just a permissive parent where you can do what you want and anything goes, but neither is he an angry father that, consistently, that we consistently disappoint. He's compassionate. And he's gracious, and he's slow to anger. Now, remember from last week, the second challenge that I want to just leave with us this morning is remember last week I spoke about Exodus 34, not just being a passage about God, but also being a passage about how we are to reflect the nature of God as we follow Jesus. And James chapter 1 picks up on that. Listen to this, James chapter 1, verse 19. He writes, My dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And then later on in James chapter 5, he picks up this theme again. He, he writes that we need to be patient just as a farmer would patiently wait for his crop. We, we too need to be patient because God's coming is near. He later on goes, to, goes on to quote Exodus 34, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And right in between his call for us to be patient and saying that the Lord is compassionate and mercy, he talks about the importance of not grumbling about others. And this is what that passage in James chapter 5 is all about. James is calling us not to grumble about others, not to, not to treat others in a, in a way where, where we are not reflecting the patience and the, and the slow to anger of God. And he says in James chapter 5, we don't have to grumble, we, we can be slow to anger because, and he says this, the judge is standing at the door. What, what is he meaning? 
He's meaning this, that it's, it's okay, it's, it's appropriate for us to, be, to be express righteous anger against injustice, for example, but, but not for us to express vengeance or frustration or anger towards others. No. It's Jesus, the judge, who will make all things right. It's Jesus, the judge, who will, who will turn all crooked things straight. A number of years ago, a close friend, we had a falling out, and they chose to leave the church. And unfortunately, they did so in a very heavy-handed manner and said some fairly, what appeared to be fairly innocuous, but under the surface were some pretty mean-spirited things. And the devil got hold of the things that that person had said about me the false accusations they had made about me and used it in a way to intimidate me. I remember at times I was fixated and consumed by what this person had said. So determined to set the record straight. And at other times I felt intimidated and fearful and thought and convinced myself that the best way to respond was to actually back away from following the purposes of God wholeheartedly, because maybe then the devil would cut me a break. I don't know if you've experienced that before, or something to that degree, but what the Lord began to show me is, is not to act in a vengeful way, but firstly to be silent to learn to be silent, and I failed miserably time after time after time, but to learn to be silent, to not grumble, but rather to pray and to trust God and to wait because God promises that He will always contend on behalf of those who trust Him. He will always vindicate those who trust Him. And evil and pain and false accusation and sin and hurt will not have the final say. That's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was cursed. He was spat at. He was mocked. There was the sound of hammers on nails as, it, as, they, as they drove nails through his flesh. There was the cry of darkness. As Jesus hung on the cross and deafening silence as his people waited. They waited one day. They waited a second day. And then finally, the father vindicated his son. Evil was judged. Sin was overcome. Death was defeated. And Jesus rose from the dead. Friends, the, the anger and the wrath of the Father is fulfilled when we hide under the person of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. 